welcome to episode three of the Sexist Podcast. My name is Sarah and this is Geordie, your famous Australian data. Um, this is The Sexist and this is the podcast where we deconstruct and reconstruct all of your favourite horror films. We're going to be talking about sex, horror, consent uh, and getting pretty nerdy about it. Nerding the fuck uh, out. Yeah. Do you, do you uh, remember though when <laughs> Sarah and I used to have a job where we would go into schools around Glasgow and we would teach consent to young people and I went into this one school where um, this kid referred to me as the Australian sex wizard and I just feel, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to get it in a business card. <laughs> so... It's so amazing when a young person just gives you an identity that you're like, oh, yeah, that is exactly now how I'm going to brand myself. Like, in my mind, I just think that you have T-shirts that say the Australian sex wizard. (laughs) I feel like when we do this podcast next time, we should say, welcome to The Sexorcist with your hosts, Jordan, the Australian sex wizard, and Sarah, the human consentipede. (laughs) (laughs) That can't be mine. That can't be mine. What would you what would you like your your host name? I think I need I think I need it needs to be given. It needs to be given. Needs to be given. There'll be a right moment. Okay, so if any of our listeners out there have a a nickname that you would like to give Sarah as the <laughs> co-host of this podcast, please write in. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're back. Hopefully you've developed some kind of parasocial relationship and you feel like our friend slash you are a friend. Should we Probably. be saying paranormal relationship? <laughs> yeah, we should. We want you to develop a paranormal relationship with us both. Mm-hmm. where you where the the ghosts of our podcast are just like haunting you on your daily basis maybe as well like when you sit down to like have your beautiful comfort time of watching the most horrific film that you can stomach you're just gonna hear like mine and Geordie's cackles in the background um that's not very good consent <laughs> you'll be watching like Halloween and someone will get stabbed and you'll be like that's not very consensual and then I'll be like good. <laughs> our work here is done <laughs> so if you haven't developed a paranormal relationship with us yet it's because you don't really know about this podcast because obviously if you've watched a few of our episodes you would have this is what it's about and how it works. So we're going to be looking at a film today. Every single month we look at a new film. It's always a horror film. Um, and we break it down. So we're going to be breaking down all of the sexual politics of the film. We're going to be looking at how it relates to consent and relationships, but also just generally everything to do with kind of sex and yeah, relationships and the dynamics Then we're going to be building the film back up. So we're going to be reconstructing, you know, you could say sexercising. We have said it before and we are (laughs) coining that term. Today, Geordie is going to be doing the deconstruction and I'm going to be reconstructing it. Um, You know, if we could have the best sex and relationships in these horror films, what would that look like? 
I feel like sometimes uh, deconstruction and reconstruction are often a bit loose. So if you're listening and it feels like we've gone well off track, we may have, but somehow we'll link it back to consent. (laughs) So strap in, kids, because today we're doing, drumroll please, Midsummer. Midsummer. So um, if you haven't watched it, go and watch it before you listen to this, okay? Unless you're some weirdo who likes to get all the spoilers before you do the watching, in which case I say to you, good on you, weirdo, and welcome. (laughs) Um, So spoiler alert, we're going to spoil the whole film. Um, Midsummer is an amazing film, but it is a heavy watch in terms of like there's some pretty gory scenes. Um, their content warning for it is like there's um, suicide, murder, grief and loss, coercion. Uh, there's a sexual assault scene as well that we will um, be talking a bit about today. It's all about cult behavior as well. So obviously, um, go gentle and take it easy when watching. Um, but we will be talking about those things in this podcast as well. So decide what you're feeling up for. Despite all of that, it is actually a really amazing film written and directed by Ari Aster, starring Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner, and William Jackson Harper, released in 2019. Okay, so we're going to do a brief rundown of Midsommar. We find ourselves with two main characters, Danny and Christian, who are in a relationship that is incredibly toxic. And then it also follows Christian's three friends, Josh, Mark and Pele, who are all anthropology students. They're all kind of finishing off their thesis. They're all very obsessed with themselves and just like kind of basic toxic dudes. Um, Pele is probably the only outlier, but it turns out later that he's kind of taking all of them to his cult to kill them all. So, you know, terrible in his own way. I know you're kind of there like, I like Pele. She should get with Pele. And then at the end, you're like, Pele is actually not a good guy. (laughs) (laughs) um but still she's in such a terrible situation you're like yeah i was still rooting when they kissed it was kind of a hot kiss as well it was a hot kiss it was weirdly hot i'm glad that you you think that i was really into it i'll tell you (laughs) what like with a horrific cult leader (laughs) every time christian touched her i went oh get your hands off her you disgusting cretin so i feel like for (laughs) me i was so repulsed by christian that i just needed i like literally anything else would have been hot for me at that point and so pele he won it out i think that's also exactly where my feelings are coming from Um, so Danny suffers quite a massive uh, trauma at the very beginning of the film. Um, her sister has committed suicide and also murdered her two parents. So it starts with this like incredibly traumatic scene of her like wailing, you know, in almost in a kind of animalistic way with Christian kind of clutching her, almost like patting her on the head, um, <laughs> completely coward and good and, boy. They're there. 
like such an uncomfortable watch it's so Um, insincere as well it's like I understand it might feel uncomfortable and difficult to watch someone in that much pain like you don't know what to say or what to do to support someone but don't do that okay if there's one rule it's like you don't just sit there and pat them like a dog and I feel like you shouldn't have to spell that out to a grown adult (laughs) it's it's like watching the most realistic depiction of grief I've pretty much ever seen on cinema totally like combined with the the least human emotional response to that um and you get that from all of the boys as well actually like the whole beginning everyone's just pissed that she's really sad so that kind of sets the tone for the film Danny who has lost all of the people that she's, you know, loves in her life. Um, just like really scared of losing her boyfriend, even though he's so terrible. Essentially, Pele invites them all to Sweden and then they go to this rural remote community in Sweden. As we go along, we're getting extreme cult vibes. Lots of violent things start happening. Uh, lots of very you know, strange rituals, people disappearing. And it just gets weirder and weirder. Lots of dancing around bay poles, lots of drug infueled trips. That's pretty much the overview. Hando, that was good. I think doing this overview has made me realise that the film has so much in it. It's Sarah. so, so multi-layered. It's, there's so much unbelievable social commentary in this. So I wrote eight pages of notes on this shit. I will say that five of those pages were within the first 10 minutes of her losing her parents and just watching Christian exist. But there's just so much social commentary in this. It was quite hard to, like, narrow down a focus. It's too good. Shall we get into the deconstruction then? I wasn't keeping it from you. You already have a ticket. I'm sorry? So... As I said, there's literally, there are so many different things in a tree that you could really pick out. There's obviously the absolute red flag of a relationship, which the whole relationship is a red flag. That's all I have to say. Everything about it is horrifying. Um, The toxic male friend group, you could do heaps on that because there's so much nuance in the way in which they egg each other on and and bring out each other's bad behaviours but also are not good friends to one another. Also, can I say, you you know how much you hate characters when you're on the side of, like, a murderous, raging, violent cult? Do you know what? The last time I felt this much um, rage, like I wanted someone to die, was Jenny Schechter in The L Word. And I just (laughs) feel like, you know it's good writing when they make someone that you love to hate. So when I was thinking about what am I going to do my deconstruction on, I had to be like, what is relevant to our podcast? And so I'm going to narrow in on emotionally coercive behaviors, particularly the emotional coercion in Danny and Christian's relationship, but also the emotional coercion done by the cult, right? Because I feel like there's a lot of um, similarities. So I guess when we're talking about coercion, emotional coercion, um, I'm talking about like, Um, emotional manipulation, mental manipulation, um, intimidating, humiliating, 
tactics or behaviors that are like a pattern where you're trying to control somebody's behavior, right? So I feel like in in Christian and Danny's relationship, it's really obvious that Christian wants to remain the good guy. He has this narrative that he's like a good boyfriend and he's doing the right thing, but actually he's kind of like emotionally checked out of the relationship. I guess his the way in which he's quite manipulative, I think, is he gives just enough feign of support for her to still feel a sense of loyalty to him and connection to him, but not enough for her to actually have her emotional needs met. So like the scene where um, he, they're at a party at the beginning and they're like, oh, we can't wait for going to Sweden. And she's like, what do you mean you're going to Sweden? And he's like, oh yeah, well, I only just decided today, but we're all going to Sweden. And she's like, when were you going to tell me you were going to Sweden? And he's like, oh my God, back off. Like basically starts gaslighting her that she's being unreasonable because he was going to go to Sweden and didn't tell her. And then you find out he booked to go to Sweden basically the day before her first birthday after her whole family were killed. When you put it like that. (laughs) So they come back from the party completely silent in the car go back into the apartment and she, she starts to kind of really stick up for herself. So she's talking about how difficult it is, obviously, to hear all of that. But she's um, also clearly being very careful of her words because she doesn't oh. want to upset him. And then he threatens to leave. He's like, oh, well, if you're going to be like that, I'll just, I'm just going to go. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, like, the, it's almost like the card that he has to play. You know, she has fucking no, no one. one. He actually Uh, says before that, he goes, I'm sorry. And then goes, I'm sorry that your mom and dad died. But he's like, and then he goes, I apologize, Danny. What more do you want? And it's like, (laughs) oh. She backtracks. I don't need an apology. I think it's fine. Don't leave. I'm really excited for you. And it's just so excruciating to watch because I feel like everyone, maybe not to that extent, but like, you know, you really, you relate to that feeling of trying to put yourself out there and then realizing that someone is just not going to hear it. And so you're like, Mm. and also that someone is playing on your insecurities to get what they want, like, to, to get the outcome he wants. If he yeah. says, I'm going to leave, knowing that she is vulnerable, has no one, and is going to basically put anything that she feels to the side to get him to stay. And that's what he does because he's a fucking manipulative piece of shit. Also, I forgot <laughs> to say in the content warning, there's going to be a lot of swearing in this because... <laughs> there is there is nothing that's going to get us going more than... Just terrible boyfriends. I've actually titled this segment Christian is a cunt. And that is <laughs> that is the truth of it. But also he's a cunt to everyone. Oh. Like he's a cunt to Danny, but he's also just like terrible, like with his friends. Yeah. He like throws he throws them all under the bus. I thought it was really interesting. So he he invites Danny to Sweden and his friends don't want Danny to come. And the way that he does it is just before she enters the room, he says, oh, by the way, I've invited Danny to Sweden. She's not going to accept, but you all, I've told her that you want her to be there. 
And I thought it was just so interesting that I was like, oh, he he gets what he wants from everybody. Mm -hmm. It's totally manipulative because if you wait to drop a truth bomb that may make other people feel like some type of way just before something related happens, like right before the event or in this case, like just before Danny arrives, then you know it'll stop people from expressing how they feel or how upset with you they are, right? Like people's internal desire to uh, stay away from conflict and awkward social situations mean that they will not have a response to him, an emotional response to him about that if Danny's there because they want to avoid that. Like, he is so smart in his fuckery. He's also pathetic. He's just deeply insecure and pathetic and spends most of the film, like, coward. Yeah, Like, he's hunched coward. over. He's a coward. Other, so the guy, the boy, the friend, the boyfriends, right? The <laughs> The pack of boys, like despite the fact that they're all quote-unquote friends, they don't seem to like each other that much. And there's a lot of kind of toxic behaviour. There's this one line where they're like driving in the car and the guy, uh, Ma, he says something about finding a girl who actually likes sex. And even though Mark says the comment, you know it's weirdly directed at Danny because it has that air of a comment that's being made from a conversation that Christian has had with the boys about the fact that him and Danny are not having sex. And it just really, I guess, struck a nerve with me that there was maybe an undertone that she is still expected to want to have sex despite the fact that all of her loved ones have died in a violent <laughs> death. And I was just, I was just thinking about like the pressure of the girlfriend, right? Like the pressure of just existing as a fucking partner in these like toxic heterosexual relationships where your literal whole family could die in a violent fucking situation. And that there's still this undercurrent of like, why don't you want to have sex with me? (laughs) (laughs) But what about me though? (laughs) When I think about things like that, you know, I often think about the, the stuff around like spontaneous versus responsive desire, right? That like some people spontaneously feel aroused and experience desire, whereas other people will experience desire in response to something else. Um, And I think like, just as you can have desire be responsive, there's a lot of things that will, in the opposite way, turn off arousal. Yeah. They call it like accelerator and breaking, isn't it? It's like what accelerates, maybe mm. like instead of seeing it like a sex drive, but like what's accelerating mm. your want to have sex and what puts on the brakes. Mm. And some of those things we're not in control of. Like totally, when you go through trauma, then there might be all sorts of different impacts that happen to you, but like it can have a huge impact on your sex life. And that might be that you want to have sex loads because for all sorts of different reasons, it also might be that that break that you've got has just intensified massively because you just don't feel as safe mm. and to be able to access pleasure. You have to feel safe. And it's not like their relationship is super lovely, warm, safe and good that would make you want to fuck anyway. She'll also just be picking up on the fact that, like, Christian clearly has the ick. Like, mm. he, like, sighs before he says, I love you. <laughs> like, he he just, like, can't even say the word. Like, I love you, I guess. Language is like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
his whole body language is just like the least attractive the least sexual the least like interested and so like even aside from like spontaneous or responsive desire I think like you just know when someone is just trying to trying to be into you for some kind of performance but like really isn't I know Um, and that's no one would want to have sex with someone who was in that position because you probably don't want to have sex with them I know like it's so I can't see two people that should fuck less. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be our main tagline for the whole film. I've never seen two people who should, who should fuck, fuck less. less. <laughs> I feel like being a podcast about sex and relationships, uh, like I feel like maybe we need to talk about the sex slash SA scene that Christian is like coerced into having sex with, I want to say, an underage girl. So, um, Christian is drugged by some of the, you know, hallucinogenic flower water um, and then they give him some gas. They say to make him virile, so I presume they give him this gas to have it like his automated response to give him an erection um, to basically make him more vulnerable and able to coerce him into impregnating this younger um, cult member. Um, so he gets into this big room and there's a girl naked in a, on the floor in like a bed of rose petals. Um, and surrounding her is this like semicircle of older naked women that are chanting. And essentially as you know, the act, the sex act happens, uh, they, they get involved essentially. So obviously if we were going to sexercise this scene, um, there are so many issues and problems with this scene in regards to uh, consent in any way, shape or form. Um, Obviously there's big problems with Christian's capacity to consent. You know, he's been um, purposefully drugged up and drugged up with something to make his body have an automatic response, um, regardless of whether or not he mentally consents or not. So that's a massive problem. Um, Also, there's like all of these other people there, which I feel like adds in like can add in a layer of like peer pressure. Like there's a large group wanting him to do it. And that even if he says no, I guess there's there's the feign of like threat or that you can't say no, or that peer pressure. So there's a power imbalance there. And um, also there's definite questions about the age and capacity of the young the young person, right? Being uh, a part of this ritual as well. So And yeah, hardcore overtones of like being virginal or like uh, a rite of passage, not yeah. sex for connection, or like that's something you have to do. Yeah, a, and other other people, like your family or your community, being very much part of your sex life. Aha! Uh-huh, like what, back in the day when they used to what, on the night that you would get married to show that you've consummated your marriage, you'd have to like hang your hang your bloody sheets out so that everyone could see that your hymen was broken. Mm. Mm. So it's like it gives that vibe, right, of like the community being absolutely far too invested in um, virginity and women's sexuality and, you know. Yeah, it's a very – it's an uncomfortable watch. Yeah. So there's a lot of non-consensual stuff that goes on in this film. I would say that the other part – that really stood out to me though was the how the cult used a lot of coercive like emotionally coercive behaviors to get people involved like they're constantly 
encouraging people to witness trauma as a way of like forcing trauma bonding like mm. you know they because if so in the film we have they have a feast and then there's these two oldies at the head of the table and they're being like celebrated and then they go to a ritual out by this cliff and the ritual is that the two oldies jump off the cliff and kill themselves in front of everybody and for the cult this is meant to be a ceremony I don't know celebrating life and death and they talk about controlling those things and blah 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 um but I feel like the fact that they constantly make these new people um witness or experience things that are known to be traumatic if you're witnessing something traumatic with somebody else it kind of creates this intense sense of intimacy that you've been through or you've witnessed something together um <clears throat> it's what people would refer to as trauma bonding what's kind of stark about the cult or the family or whatever is that after something traumatic has happened there is a, members of the cult there to actually hold her and respond to her in a way that Christian and probably her family were not able to do. So like after the suicide um, of the two oldies and Christian's like, go and take some time for yourself. She goes into the, the house to start packing her clothes and Pele comes in and basically is like, you need to be here. I lost my family too do you even feel held like truly held by Christian? I like, we can hold you. We can be your family. Everyone deserves a family. Um, and then after Danny witnesses her witnesses, Christian in that, you know, um, weird sex soaking scene. Um, <laughs> she, then the, the women come around her and they just start sobbing together and she's crying. And then they start mirroring her crying in this like weird, like primal kind of, um, almost like this weird, so like song and dance. And you can see the way in which they take her, they put her in a vulnerable space and then they use that time to swoop in and create this false sense of like connection and intimacy. Yes. And, you know, it, it's interesting how that scene, it mirrors the first scenes or the opening scenes of the film, you know, so in stark contrast to Christian kind of pathetically limply like patting her on the head, you then have this like complete other end of the spectrum, which is a group of women like wailing with you. And so you kind of have coercion on, on both extremes in this film. You have mm. like coercion that is like, I'm going to give you absolutely no emotional attention. I'm going to like Stop take you. away yeah, of like your so emotional attention so that you're like desperate for the crumbs Yeah, all the way up until I'm going to hold you. I'm, I'm the only one that's there for you. That will come at the cost of, you can't do that with anyone else. True, um, it's like um, Danny's the little rag doll and a game of tug of war between two coercive relationships. Yes, they're both coercive, but they're just other sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that codependency is that feeling that you either can't live without the like the emotional tension that someone gives you or you're craving any crumbs mm. of emotional tension. It shows you as well, I think, how when we're starved for love you know if we had if we've got attachment stuff where we were starved we weren't our needs weren't met when we were younger 
how susceptible we are to love bombing. So let's be real. The cult is love bombing the shit out of Danny and why that works so well for us, but also in a, in a, a coercive or abusive relationship, you often will have over like love bombing this, like feeling really held real intimacy, this feeling like real passionate, like it's all uh, all about you and this intimacy. And then the person will emotionally detach and make you beg for crumbs and try to make it back. And it's almost like in between the stark kind of contrast of Christian and Midsummer, you see what happens to people in abusive relationships. It's the two. And that, I feel like it, that is one of the kind of main coercive ways that the cult brings Danny on board. And obviously they drug people a lot in this film non-consensually. <laughs> and I feel like that is coercive and straight up <laughs> not consensual behavior. Um, and that also does the trick, I would say. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, we kind of like try and get you to like look at all this horrible stuff. But we're also have just laced all of your food and drink. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, all of the drug taking in the film in terms of Danny's character is coercive in some way. Like there are some scenes where she agrees to taking mushrooms or agrees to, you know, drinking the water that's got some kind of drugs in it. But there's a hell of a lot of pressuring that's going on in around those scenes. So even though like, yeah, she's kind of doing it, it doesn't feel like there's many options to say no. And I think when it comes to consent, in a way, maybe this film doesn't focus so much on sex, but I feel like around drugs, the consent is huge. Mm-hmm. Like I, that really interesting scene at the beginning, so they've just arrived at the cult and mm-hmm. Danny that they're they've just met up with some friends and they all have magic mushrooms and they want to take it and Danny quite rightly is you know really nervous she says I want to just get settled first I just you take it and like let me get settled and then I'll decide and Christine in his pathetic weedy little voice is like oh I'll wait for you babes with everything in his body saying I don't want to do that he he literally is like really well um I guess I'll I'll wait too (laughs) fuck you Christian honestly like there's so much like inhaling that Christian does before the things that he knows he needs to say but he 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 clearly just fucking hates saying it he's like (gasps) Uh, and then the friends are like the friends are like well you can't do it at a different time dude because then all of our trips will be at different times and then he like pauses and then looks at her and then does his big uh no it's fine I'll wait oh no I'll I'll wait and she's like oh no 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 I don't want to be a burden no 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 and then and then you know the whole oh I don't want you to feel pressured it's like it's such an interesting I feel like that whole scene is such an interesting thing when we're talking about consent because it shows you that you can say all of the right things you can say I don't want you to be pressured you can offer an option of taking it later or you know doing or not doing it at all you can say all of that but in the pauses of what you don't say or in your body language or in all of the likes of like how you show someone that you are really annoyed that you're having to do that or like make someone feel like they are a burden 
that still takes away someone's options. In terms of like seeing consent in this way, I think like firstly, like Sarah and I, when we talk about consent, you know, a lot of people will have a definition where they presume like consent is permission and just really rudimentary. And it's like, it's either yes or no, you've either got it or you don't. Um, Whereas I guess I think what's like realistic around consent is that consent is about like increasing your freedom to choose. Yeah. So like in ways in which we can increase our capacity and our freedom to feel like we can make choices that are right for us. So in a situation where like technically Christian is saying the right kind of things, there's this implicit undertone that her choice will have a negative consequence. So how free is she to make that choice? I would say not very. And so if you were to take only a legal standard definition of consent, you'd look at that situation and be like, yep, she consented because she said yes and she took them. But actually, if you were to look at, well, how consensual is that situation? Did she feel really free to choose? Was there pressures going on? Yeah. So changing the way in which we think about consent to like how can we make things more consensual? How do we increase consent in situations so that everyone feels freer and able to choose? And I think that's like super important because of exactly this situation where Christian, the little dweeby piece of shit, knows what to say to make himself seem like the good guy. But everything about his behavior is that he's trying to pressure her to do what he wants. It's like, I've never seen such a good depiction of yeah, I'm going to say all of the things that so performative make me look good, but actually it will get the thing that I want, which is I want to take drugs with my friends right now and I don't actually give a shit about you. No. Um, and obviously she goes on to have a panic attack and like see like her dead sister in a mirror. and It's fucking terrifying. Yeah, because um, there's one yeah. thing that probably isn't ideal about if you've just experienced a hectic trauma is being surrounded by people that are deeply not comfy or safe people doing hallucinogens in a random field is <laughs> kind of, is going to end badly. I, so for the viewers, it ends with Danny smiling in a way that is a bit euphoric and a bit out of it. Yeah, like someone who's super high at a festival but they're like it's maybe like day three and you talk to them and they're like smiling but they're like vacant in the Mm -hmm. eyes and you think are you actually in this conversation and (laughs) you don't really know but you want to get out of the conversation as quickly as possible um (laughs) (laughs) you know that so that's the smile (laughs) that's a 100% smile that Florence Pugh is giving at the end of the film (laughs) to be fair because there's no night or day contrast a lot of the time I'm like how long has this been going on for because it sort of feels like it's a three-day bender that they're just like waking up smashing mushies you know watching traumatic shit dancing around a pole and then just like at it again the next day like I feel like they are that person at the end of a three-day festival that you Um, want to avoid eye contact with at all costs well, I think if we took that metaphor, then maybe Danny just like goes down the rabbit hole and never comes back. Or she goes back to her flat and has a cuddle puddle with her friends and says, <laughs> I'm never drinking again. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's at the pub then... the next day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just the idea of all of 
them cuddle puddling together gives me the heebie-jeebs. Fuck yeah. <clears throat> um, I feel like it's it's definitely overdue time to move on to the reconstruction. Buckle Reimagination up, time, baby. Everyone, you know, buckle up. You thought you thought that this film was depressing in every single way. Well, let's reconstruct it. Let's bring some joy back into this film. Yes. Um, I was like trying to think of loads of different things when I was thinking about how I could reimagine Midsommar. And every single time what I came back to, which I feel like is the ultimate horror movie feeling, is like all of the moments that Danny could have said something, could have left, could have followed what she was feeling and her instincts and just got out of the situation or got out of that relationship. You know, you you almost feel like you're like screaming at the film, like just leave, like everything that you feel is completely true and you just need to run now. Um, and obviously, you know, no no blame on Danny for not doing that because there was a hell of a lot of reasons why she didn't. But I think if I was reconstructing it, that's just what I came back to. I was like, how could Danny have picked up on every single red flag? Because I think pretty much every interaction with her sort of bin fire of a boyfriend was a red flag. If she just like leaned into what she was feeling, spoke what was going on for her, um, I think that's the only reconstruction, reimagining of this that that I came to. I feel like Uh, maybe as well if she had like a good group of friends because when you're experiencing a lot of like trauma, I mean, with a skilled manipulator anyway, it can be very hard to see, you know, the truth through the trees. I don't know what the saying is the wood through the trip, whatever. It's hard to see the truth when someone is purposefully manipulating you. And then when you're really vulnerable and have a lot of trauma. So there's something to be said about having like really honest, good friends that have your back when if you are in a space where you are so used to ignoring your internal alarm system that you've got people that have got your back. God, that's a perfect world. 100%. I think my reimagining is how would this all have been different if she had pals that were like had her back and really cared about her and also like maybe reimagining a little bit of like the dependency that they had within that relationship. I mean, you know, maybe Christian had like his friends, but he clearly hated his friends too and she just doesn't really seem to have that many more supports. So there's this like amazing scene right at the very beginning. Um, this is when, you know, she's getting the email from her sister. She's really worried about it. You know, it, it sounds really concerning. It sounds like her sister's in a very, very dark place. Um, and she has chosen to, or she has rung Christian. And they've had this conversation where Christine has really sort of gaslit her and made her feel like she's being too much by even worrying about it in the first place. So she's got this huge alarm system going off, which has now been kind of dampened and refocused all of that energy into feeling like she's too much for her boyfriend. Mm, Yeah. And there's a moment where she has a conversation with a friend. So this is the only time in the film that she's talking to someone 
that maybe is family, maybe is a friend, but is clearly not related to Christian or like her close family. And she's really worried about, you know, he like I'm too much. I am bringing all of this stuff to him. It's not fair. And there's a point at which her friend interjects and says, oh, what did the email actually say? And I just thought it was such a beautiful little moment of like, yeah, exactly what you were saying, Jordi, like how your friends can just go, actually, wait a second here. This isn't the thing that you need to be worrying about. Mm. Your initial response of this really stressful situation sounds really concerning. And like that gut feeling that you had, you know, let's talk about that. Mm. Um, I feel like there's almost a something that's speaking to me when you're talking about how what Danny needs actually is like her chosen family. Um, and like, you know, it's a big part of queer culture. We talk about a chosen family because a lot of queer folks um, maybe don't have good relationships with their families because of homophobia, transphobia. or And so a lot of the time queer folks go and like you know their friends become their family and we start to see that a real prioritizing of friends as people as important as family or as important as your intimate partner um and and in a way it speaks to a lot of relationship anarchy right of like that friendship is just as important if not more important than your intimate partners or your family or what have you and it's so interesting because this is a movie about Danny in a way seeking that true connection and seeking family but not getting anything that is like her chosen family like she's just getting abusive shitty icky relationships or a cult that's like we can be your family come on board like do you know what I mean totally and also that those forms of family are kind of the ones that we are told are great in society you know Mm. like the kind of very close relationship with one person where like they're meant to give you everything quite codependent setups whether it's like romantic or like family it just feels like she's chosen none of that Mm. um but they're just like amped up versions of the relationships that we're told servers in society and like so clearly don't yeah and in danny's situation so don't so i wouldn't i want those friends to kind of come out of the woodwork scoop her up and give her that sense of everything that you're feeling right now is legit. Like your fact that your boyfriend is going to go to Sweden in two weeks time, a day after your birthday, the year that everyone in your life has died. Yeah. That's a little bit shitty. Yeah. <laughs> you can be annoyed about that. Yeah. I mean, fucking hell. It made me realize I was like, I get annoyed about like the smallest of shit like you can if you can minimize that you could minimize anything totally it's (laughs) so sad isn't it it's like danny has all of these big feelings it's almost like her body is crumbling under the weight of how big her feelings are and yet there's absolutely nothing or no one to hold her and yet she spends a lot of the time, yeah, apologizing or minimizing her feelings mm. just to keep Christian around, who's a fucking dead weight. And it's interesting because I was like, you know, 
I almost love the ending because she moves beyond that. But I think what's sad about it is that actually she's not moving on to, you know, self-actualizing or like finding herself or choosing herself. She's moving on to like just like a horrendous violent cult where she has to recruit people to kill them. <laughs> the real horror of this film is that she has to go and pretend to be an anthropologist. <laughs> 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 bring on loads of dweeby anthropologist men to murder them <laughs> in a field <laughs> so in your reimaginations what at what point do you think danny's chosen family would step in and change the course of the film i think she would just be getting support at this point you know they'll be like obviously you still feel something for this guy but just really want to back you in the fact that he's, he's this is a real dick move. I've got people in my life that have got my back, uh, but I still want to go. I'm still going to go. And then I think the next point, she sort of says, you know, I don't want to be taking these drugs. And she doesn't. And I feel like in that con- in that reconstruction, Christian still would. Yeah. Do you know? Like he's 100. such a like cowardly piece of shit but really at the end of the day he gets everything that he wants can i uh, ask you a side note question for a minute as a friend to other friends are you the type of friend who says your boyfriend's a piece of shit and you should dump him or or (laughs) allows them space to kind of work it out themselves by gentle like support and like that sounds um like a not ideal behavior maybe you're better than that. Like what, what camp do you sit in as a friend? I think I'm the second one, but I think there's times where I will become the first if I feel like it's gone too far. Yeah. That, like I prefer the second one because sometimes you can isolate people further if they feel like they have to defend the person that they're with mm-hmm. to you. Mm-hmm. But there's certain points where you just need someone to know that what is happening is not okay. And also, there are just some boyfriends that are actually the fucking worst. Like, yeah, and girlfriends. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Actually, <laughs> some horrible girlfriends as well. But um, <laughs> look, I am. I would like to say that I try to be the latter, but <laughs> <laughs> sometimes the boyfriends are just too fucking much, and I'm like, oh, I can't. I can't have. I can't watch such a cool person waste their life next to this bin fire. So it's hard to say. It depends on how bad the partner is. <laughs> I think you need both. You've got you've got the Geordie attack of like telling her exactly how you know what a dick he is. You've also got the other friend who's going, mm, you know, it's it sounds like you it's really try to your say feelings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so she doesn't go on the trip and she has time to kind of like really think around things and kind of reflect on what's been going on. And do you know what I think the turning point will be? When he forgets her fucking birthday. I'm like, you can minimize trauma. You can hold someone very uncomfortably. You know, all of that. I'm like, forgetting her birthday. Oh my God, Sarah. <laughs> That's where she draws the line. She's like, you can minimize the fact that I just saw someone kill themselves and it reminds me of my parents that just died by suicide, but um, you forgot my fucking birthday, you cretin. <laughs> <laughs> you should see her face. when Because she, she wakes up 
and she's just gone on this horrible trip and she's kind of sleeping somewhere in a random field and he wakes her up and she's like is it the next day and you can just tell everything in her mind is going it's my birthday it's my birthday it's my birthday you've just woken me up you know that feeling when you wake up on your birthday and you're like oh, what's gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know and then she's like oh I do know you're just gonna forget and so there's this really so depressing scene where he's like trying to light the candle this like crappy little piece of cake and he actually says at one point oh you didn't think I forgot did you and then he apologized and says, I'm sorry. So it's like, even he knows he can't even lie and get away with it. He, but the fact that he even does. Right. I know. I feel like out of everything dramatic that happens in this film, I really want that to be the turning point for Danny's character. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe as well, I feel like she's, you know, throughout the whole film, that intuition that she has and that she kind of completely starts to minimize she's the one who's noticing that everyone's leaving she she mm-hmm. knows that people are being killed so i feel like she's either clocked on to this place being super creepy or and she tries to take them with her or she just gets the fuck out i mean uh, i feel like what would be a great imagination for this reimagination is do you remember in get out how the lead character's name in that I don't know. I know the actor's name is Daniel. So we'll call him Daniel. But he goes to um, the house of his white girlfriend and gets held up by the horrible white parents. And then he's got a friend on the outside who's, like, dedicated to, like, hunting him down and breaking him out. I feel like she, it's, like, it starts with, like, her friends and chosen family and they were, like, giving her support and then she's, like, giving them updates from what's happening and they're getting more and more, like, the fuck this sounds crazy and then they get on a plane to go and break her out yes yes you're so right and they turn up in some yeah 100 percent and we're breaking out (laughs) (laughs) and i just want because there's lots of like aerial shots in the film so i'm like imagining like this kind of like um rental car like maybe like a like a Renault Clio in the middle of this like um (laughs) lovely fields (laughs) <laughs> field and this like tiny little car is just like going top speed with like sort of a whole crowd of like white robed people running probably in some kind of intense cult formation behind it and they just get away yeah oh. I love that it remind that'll be like that weird beer ad do you remember that weird beer ad that was like <laughs> it's a big ad and it was all those people running in robes I feel like that's the imagery and then there's just a little car with like a group of like millennial friends all together being like drive drive get out of here (laughs) and then uh, you know everyone wakes up and we all realize that it's Florence Pugh who's been acting Danny and then Florence Pugh just falls in love with me and we live happily (laughs) (laughs) so hang on (laughs) Can can I just have a recap that so the reimagination goes she 
decides to still go on a trip. She's got a good group of friends <laughs> and family that have her back. She decides to to try and really feel out the relationship because she's not ready to give it up. She goes to Sweden. He forgets her <laughs> birthday. She dumps him and starts messaging and the group chat, the WhatsApp chat, being like, shit's getting really weird here. Like, people are dying. Come get me out. They come in a car to break her out in some epic kind of aerial scene and she comes home and you two get together <laughs> that's that's the end of the <laughs> yeah and she and she's like oh Sarah I I never realized that all along it was you and then does the really weird creepy smile that happens at the end of the film oh my god, <laughs> oh my god. um I love that reimagination I you know it's a first for us on the podcast that um we've been inserted in as characters to the reimagination. <laughs> uh, I I am here for that because it, I do think that you and um, Florence Pugh would be a match made in uh, heaven. I think I actually just hate Christian so much because I want to be with Florence Pugh. I think this is what I realised. Yeah. It was a very, you know, self-involved, <laughs> self-interested. Yeah. Positive. I tell you, when I was doing, when I was writing, I think I put timestamps for when I stop, and I had had four pages at eight minutes of just like, what a fucking dick. Then he said this, and he's gone on to do this. What do you mean? And it, like, there's just parts where I'm just like, fuck off, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like absolutely fucking raging. <laughs> If anyone ever wants to kind of envisage like mine and Jordy's prep for this podcast, I'm sort of imagining like just just picture the scene of like some kind of like shining esque uh, scene <laughs> where, where where Jack's writing like those notes over and over again in his like big scary book. That's just like us with our laptops. <laughs> I feel like that's you. My vibe is like more. Do you know um, in the movie The Others when they get that psychic that's got like wide eyes and she's just writing over and over again. <laughs> And the pages are going and she's just, help me, help me, help me, help me or whatever. I feel like that is me. I mean, it's just good that we come back every every month so that you know that we're not actually possessed from doing this in some kind of meta twist of fate. Maybe we need to be exercised. Oh, 100%. Like, I think me and Florence would go on, like, a very long journey of, like, thinking about how... The, you know the deep patterns of relationships in society have completely fucked us up and we would like learn very slowly with a lot of communication how to give each other a lot of space and independence in life we would just have this like very deep connection um that like was you know fully on board for doing what we could to make each other the best versions of ourselves um there is something <laughs> there is something deeply nerdy and like equal parts awesome equal parts embarrassing that is dating someone who's like in the sex educator world where all of your relationships are just like like oh let's talk about and how are you feeling about that and let's discuss what feeling that brings up and where are your boundaries and how does that like I feel like what you were describing is my relationship <laughs> that I'm like <laughs> This seems embarrassing. Like I feel 
I feel embarrassed. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I'm telling you my my ultimate dream. <laughs> <laughs> so is that that the- is the end. Thank you for coming along for that wild ride. <laughs> and it was a wild ride. Who knew that the ending of the reimagination would involve Sarah and Florence Pugh running off into the sunset <laughs> together? I mean, me? But actually, <laughs> yeah. uh, it really came to me live on air. So that was a hot take <laughs> that I hadn't even realised for myself. And that's <laughs> that's honestly the true beauty of this podcast because I, I say that we take notes. Um, what is actually happening is absolute sprawlings and then we come together and try to uh, read what the fuck we were talking about (laughs) for some of us it's all swear words so I don't really know what to do about that um so thanks for bearing with us is what I would say thanks for really holding on (laughs) yeah holding on is the right word (laughs) but you've made it so well done next month if you're still up for it (laughs) (laughs) we're we're all into consent here right so there's no absolutely no pressure to come back but if you decide that you're i don't know weird and still up for it next next month we're gonna do it follows um if you want to watch it before next month we really recommend this is you know i would say a film it's surprising that we haven't got there already it's very much in the zeitgeist of sex sex horror it's literally so obvious so i feel like we have to do it now (laughs) hopefully it's a good episode (laughs) (laughs) we can all be susceptible to pressure okay even the australian sex wizard and the human consent (laughs) debate oh my god no 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 I'm going to come back with a better nickname for next week because this cannot catch on. A reminder uh, to the listeners, <laughs> write in. Yeah, please, please give me a better nickname. It needs to happen. Um, you can send all of your suggestions to our email address, which is thesexassistpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us films that you want us to review. You can send us feedback. You can name me. You could name Geordie. Hey, it's all up for grabs. Just send us your thoughts. You can also DM us on Instagram at the sexist underscore podcast. Um, Get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. But (laughs) thank you for listening and we'll see you in a month. Get watching. Bye. Bye.